Well, good morning again, and I hope that you've enjoyed the week. We had some some good temperatures, some cold temperatures, some of that white stuff. I just, the weather doesn't know what it's going to do here in this month, but uh, it's always exciting when you enter spring, a new season, a time of, of growth, of life, um, and you know, as we come together here today, I'm glad to see so many people. Um, definitely a little bit more cramped since we don't have all the teens sitting in the back, um, but you know, it, it's good to see everyone here. And you know, as we sit here, I wonder sometimes if you, if you take the time to appreciate being able to have fellowship with like-minded believers, to profess Christ above all things, and never cease to be amazed at how the Spirit works in our life, no matter the types of ups and downs that we might have throughout the week. It kind of turns around as we get to come together to worship God, as we get to, to praise Him with one another. You know, I had a discussion with Paul this week about how my February went really well. Things were just great in a lot of areas in my life. And as March began, it still seemed to be pretty good. But in that conversation, it kind of dawned on me that Easter is going to be here before we know it. As a pastor, I've been very aware of how attacks usually ramp up right before Easter. And it was at that moment that the awareness was brought into my mind, and sure enough, this past week and a little bit over has been full of different attacks from the enemy. And it's comical anymore just to know when the attacks are going to be coming, when things ramp up. So I want to check on something, ramble on a little bit about the message from last week. I mean, I had to laugh after last week's message about how as guys we need to step up as spiritual leaders in the home. I got some good response, got some good conviction to move forward, some different action steps from some guys. So guys, I want to ask you, how were the attacks this week? You know, I usually find when I hear a good message, when I'm listening to something and I, I find something where the Spirit is going to convict me to make these changes in life, that the enemy is right there to kick me right back down. So how was your time management this week? Anger issues? Fighting with, with family members? Different ways that the enemy can try to get you unmotivated? How was your devotional time? You know, it's not a foreign thing to face these attacks from the enemy. As Ephesians 6 says, we need to be prepared, fully equipped with the armor of God to be ready to face these attacks, knowing that they're going to come, knowing that our enemy prowls around like a lion waiting to devour us. It's in those moments where we seem to have a glimmer of hope that he comes to try to snatch it away. I find how the ending point for us last week is great in theory and in preaching, where we are to be in the word, to understand the word, and then obey the word. It seems so simple to talk about. It's that living out part that kind of trips us up. I mean, if we did that well, you wouldn't really have much of a need for me, would you? 
So maybe that's job security. I don't know. But then it gets into this application, the encouragement aspect of being in the word, to be in a body of fellowship of believers, to encourage each other to take those steps forward in our faith, to make these changes. And we look at the discipleship process. We look at the sanctification in our lives. As a pastor, I look to the future. I look to how to implement an attainable vision for the body to help us grow. In a congregational sense, my goals have always been to make disciples who make disciples, where we're passing this down to the other people, to other generations, to people that are in our mission field, because our mission fields are outside of those doors, where God calls us to be his servants. And now he also calls us to serve one another here with the spiritual gifts that we have to build up the body. You know, from this position, it's harder to get into some of those nitty-gritty specifics that we each individually deal with. I can touch on some things, and the Spirit can convict you in your life, and it's harder to address those things. It's more in that discipleship aspect, more in that mentoring role, more in the one-on-ones or the small groups where you're going to find the Spirit working well, where as a body, we can really lean in and go deeper with each other, using the gifts that the Spirit has given us to draw us closer to the Lord. You know, it's such a great feeling when we have that atmosphere, when we have that fellowship, when we get to come together to worship Him. And today we get to have a potluck afterwards too. That's always good. That's always a bonus. So let's pray again before we go to the Word today. Father, as we approach Your Word, we're mindful that we have an enemy that does, that wants nothing more than to separate us from You. So I pray protection against the enemy's advances today. Lord, that he would not have any ground within our hearts and minds, that we can focus solely on your truth. Lord, that we would be able to use what you have given us in the spirit, the grace of God, to build each other up in the faith. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, so today we're going to finish up uh, the last of the gifts here in this portion of Romans 12, and we'll be moving on to 1 Corinthians 12 next week, and we're going to cover the last portion of verse 8, a portion that says, the one who does acts of mercy in cheerfulness. Now, other versions might say the ones who show mercy or the ones who show kindness or the compassionate in place of this term of the acts of mercy. You know, mercy is one of those funny words to truly understand and get a good grasp of because the meaning of it is so deep. In the standard definition, when we're talking about the mercy of God, in terms of God's mercy, justice, and grace, I always say that I understand mercy to be God not giving us what we deserve. Okay, so that's kind of a standard theological definition to understand within those three terms. But the term mercy that's found in the Bible, the meaning is a lot deeper than just that understanding, than just that definition. There's a lot of depth and, and complications that, that draw out for us a wonderful picture of this term. And we're going to just kind of scratch the surface with that today. But you know, 
when we base the definition, if you think about that definition of how it is not God not giving us what we deserve, and we look at Romans 12, would you say that is Paul's meaning that he is going for there in terms of the understanding of mercy? Not giving what those people deserve and to be doing that in cheerfulness. Probably not. So again, we have to dive deeper into this term to understand the meaning that Paul is trying to, to draw out, while at the same time adding into this depth of cheerfulness and what that means. So again, with this gift, it's the last gift in a set of three that seem to deal a little bit more with the welfare of the people, of the body, where they're taking care of each other. For the Greek term that's used, this is the only time in Paul's writing where it is a person doing acts of mercy to another person. Every other time that Paul uses it, it is God having mercy on people. Now, there are some other biblical examples where we are to be merciful using this exact term. In Jude, verses 22 and 23, he says, And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by flesh. So we see some examples of mercy towards others and how that is to be used. But again, with Paul, primarily his form of mercy or using this term is God having mercy on other people. So within this understanding of the gift, being more in this, the welfare portion of the list, we have to look to other definitions for our meaning. Now a popular understanding uh, of interpretation within this verse is more to ministering to the sick, to the needy, um, helping out the poor, caring for the aged and the disabled. It's kind of in line with almsgiving within this culture and how that was in importance for even the Israelites and the temple. So within these last three gifts, Paul is strengthening this picture of the body, how Christian believers, the congregation, acts like a body, right? And with all of these gifts, we need to remember they're just aspects of the charis, of the charismata, the grace of God being lived out among the people. Now, some other interpretations will think mercy is meant more of in general, in all of the different ways that it can mean. So it's not trying to narrow the understanding of mercy to just the poor or just the sick, but rather you have this thought that prevails of let them be willing to do it and take pleasure in it. You know, God loves a cheerful giver. And the doing it is any form of mercy, any act of compassion that you can think of where you are having cheerfulness in your acts, having a pleasant countenance, a smile on your face when you're doing it. It's not grudging. It's not, it's not something that's unwilling. You know, you think about as people help you out, you can tell just from facial expressions if somebody wants to be there or not. You know, and if somebody wants to be there and you see that on their face and you're helping somebody that might be in a miserable situation, what that can do for that person is help to lift them up and out to see some hope, just off of a smile, something so simple. With pleasant looks, gentle words, where you have the, the indications of readiness and willingness to help, rather than 
again, doing something because you might be forced to do it. Now, one example of this gift, I think of uh, assuming a Christian perspective into it, is you can think of our hospital situations right now, our doctors and our nurses. Those who are Christians, especially those who are Christians, would seem to just have this gift as their profession, to where they're going into this profession with this type of gift. And you think of the type of run-ins our doctors and nurses, hospital staff have had, especially over the last couple of years. From the perspective of doctors and nurses, dealing with people who are sick, who are miserable, dealing with mandates from the government, dealing with people who are commonly cross and no more than you do because Google is better than a medical degree. But they have to put on patience. And if they're Christians, cheerfulness, as this verse says, to make their work more pleasant, more acceptable to God. You know, you think of somebody that's endowed with this gift and in this position of showing mercy. How difficult would it be not to become disgruntled, to become unhappy, to not show this type of gift with the heavy demands that are made on their time, their energy? But if a doctor or a nurse or somebody in the medical field understands their calling from God to work in this way, to show acts of mercy with cheerfulness, what a difference that makes to the people that they are ministering to that are going through these miserable times, that have fear of the unknown, that are afraid of death, that things look so bleak, to be used by God in a way to bring cheer into their life, to bring hope, to bring security in Christ. Again, one example of mercy. When we look at the biblical meaning of mercy, it is exceedingly rich and complicated. It's brought out by the fact that there are several Hebrew and Greek words that are needed to comprehend the many sides of mercy. As I said in the open, that we have a general understanding of not getting what we deserve, but we also acknowledge that there are many synonyms that are used to describe mercy. Some of these include kindness, Loving kindness, goodness, grace, favor, pity, compassion, charity, forgiveness, steadfast love, and many more. All of these terms have this idea that we have of, or understanding that we have of mercy included within them. And we need these terms to help unshow and unpack how big this term truly is even from the different perspectives of how we approach the term, we do see some commonalities within those understandings. According to Baker's Encyclopedia, it's more of a theological type of encyclopedia, they say, what is prominent about the concept of mercy is the compassionate disposition to forgive an offender or adversary and to help or spare him in his sorry plight. At the heart of the concept of mercy is the love of God, which is freely manifested in his gracious saving acts on behalf of those to whom he has pledged himself in a covenantal relationship. 
So within how we see mercy from God and then how we look towards others, in terms of the type of relationship that we have, in terms of those who we are, we are called to show mercy to, to show love to, to show forgiveness to, to show compassion to. This is, again, within the body and the context of the body of Christ, within the church. So my question for you today is, how have we pledged to one another as a body to be merciful? In what ways do we understand this mercy using different synonyms? How does that, you know, how does that um, point us in different directions, depending on how we might understand mercy differently? Another example, many times when we think of mercy, we can, how it can come alongside of forgiveness. So just using this synonym, how is our forgiveness? Even within the body? Are we forgiving only on our terms? Is it done in cheerfulness? There are a lot of hard passages when it comes to forgiveness. I'm not sure if you've studied those. But if you want, we're going to be in the book of Matthew quite a bit in different places today. If you want to turn over there, we'll start in Matthew chapter 6. Part of the Sermon on the Mount. So Matthew chapter 6, I'm going to begin in verse 14 and 15. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your heavenly Father forgive your trespasses. Of course, this comes off of the model of prayer that, that Jesus gives. And he says just up ahead there, and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. You know, you think about those people that maybe have wronged us. How's our forgiveness? Does it come easy? Does it come naturally? Turn over to Matthew 18. In Matthew 18, you find the parable of the unforgiving servant. I want to start with just the, the opening section, and then we'll, we'll get to the parable after a little bit here. But in that, in starting in verse 21, Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. So, I mean, even before the parable, we see why the parable is going to come. You have Peter coming up and asking this question, if seven times is a good amount of times to forgive somebody. Now, he's probably reflecting on the number of perfection, thinking, well, that's a good number to say. Let's just say seven. But the heart of what Peter's asking is, I want a boundary. 
at what point do I no longer have to forgive this person? Have you been there? Have you been there in your life where you've had to forgive a person continually, over and over and over again? Do you still do it cheerfully? Many times when I'm counseling with people, just talking with people, people will say that they have forgiven someone because it's a Christian thing to do. But they haven't really forgiven them because they're still holding on to such bitterness, resentment, and hurt in their hearts. And then on the flip side, sometimes people will just forgive flippantly without thinking of the meaning of forgiveness. And we live in an age of Manipulation where people will use the fact that you're a Christian and say, well, you have to forgive because you're a Christian and try to walk all over you. So you're told to stand up for yourself a little bit. I think understanding forgiveness is difficult of how to not be a pushover, how to forgive in cheerfulness, how to stand for the truth, and through it all, being merciful. It's a hard balance to find, for sure. I think of Jesus on the cross as, as he is being crucified, as he is pers- being persecuted in such strong ways, his thought is, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I'm like, I, I would have a little bit more to think about than others at that moment. I mean, I have more holes in my body now that I didn't really want, but here I am. And Jesus' thought is on others, on being merciful, on how his heart breaks for those who are lost. Jesus tells Peter not seven times, but 77. I don't think that's actually meant to be the number, like once you get to 77, okay, then you've tried your best, you're good, you don't have to forgive. But it's just, whatever number you're thinking, it's a multiple of that. You are to be about forgiveness. You know, we read that passage in in Matthew 6. As a Christian, you forgive because you have been forgiven. Paul says it this way in Colossians 3. He says, put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above these things put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Now how many synonyms within that passage can you find dealing with mercy? And then we'll get to this in a little while, but then you see the part about how love binds everything. Everything is done in love. You know, 1 Corinthians 13 tells us about that. How everything that we're doing, our acts of mercy must be done in love. Not for a checklist, not for grudging, grudgingly doing something because your parents tell you to do it, but done in love with pure motive, a pure heart. So let's go back to Matthew 18, if you're there still, and we're going to read through this parable. A parable I'm sure that most of you are familiar with. But this time, as we read through it, I want you to focus on the details of the terms of mercy, pointing out different synonyms that you might see 
and in Jesus' teaching here. So beginning in verse 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then this master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant? as I had mercy on you. And in, anger, and in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Now it's, again, you look at the term and it's complicated. It gets difficult to, to live out. It's easy to get up here and preach about something, to say how something is true, to say how something is right. But when we get to some of these issues of mercy, of forgiveness, of bitterness, of resentment in our hearts, well, then it becomes personal. When we look at the gifts of the Spirit, obviously we're just attempting to scratch the surface of acts of mercy. It's a lot deeper than what we can give on one Sunday. And we want to understand the context of how it's, again, believed to be talking about taking care of the sick, the poor, the elderly, how it's to be done with cheerfulness. So why did I spend time on examples? Why did I spend time on forgiveness and the synonyms within it? Well, because I think when we're doing acts of mercy, we need to be forgiving in a lot of ways, forgiving in our attitudes and situations. So that no matter what we're doing, we're doing for the glory and honor of God. And sometimes people can brush up against that. They can frustrate you. They can disappoint you. They can hurt you. A lot of times it's because they're fearful. They're nervous. They don't know how to respond. They don't know how to communicate. And they need someone who is full of mercy to help them see that. Someone who is full of cheerfulness. Now again, maybe not the bubbly type of attitudes that seem to be over the top type of happy. But cheerfulness in knowing what they've received from God. And the willingness to share that with others. To share the grace that they have. Knowing what they have been forgiven from. Let me give you another passage to chew on. Again in Matthew. Matthew chapter 9. <clears throat> verse 
Matthew chapter 9, verses 10 through 13. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he, Jesus, heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. You know, and within this passage, Jesus is quoting Hosea 6.6. And that says, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. And he uses the same quote in Matthew 12, addressing again the Pharisees. As Jesus says something twice like this, I think it's probably important for us to dive deeper into, to try to understand what does he mean when he says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, knowing that his audience is the Pharisees, Pharisees who are probably trying to live to the letter of the law, trying to complete the law, to do the law in order to gain righteousness and favor with the Father. And what Jesus is saying, what Hosea was saying, even to the people back then, is that God is, he, he requires mercy over your sacrifices. Mercy seems to be a better form of obedience than sacrifice, than going through the motions. They needed to be about acts of mercy. So what are these acts of mercy? Turn over to Matthew 25. And we'll see a few of them here. Again, it's not an exhaustive list by any means. Matthew 25, beginning in verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundations of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? When did, you, when did we see you sick or in the prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then you have the converse of, of the goats on the, on the left of what, what he speaks to, of those that didn't do these acts of mercy. You, know, you think of these acts of mercy, these examples, and how they are taking care of those that are around them, taking care of their communities. You think of all of the spiritual gifts that are listed here in Romans, how they are meant to build up the body, to equip the body, to edify the body. 
how these gifts are be, to be used to draw people closer to the Father. A lot of these gifts uh, and their understandings deal with speaking and serving others, and there's a degree of overlap within them. You know, as we compare Paul's teachings, we see he doesn't have a defined set of, of gifts in terms of his ministries that are laid out for the people. Rather, when we look at Romans 12, when we look at 1 Corinthians 13, he is showing a need for a regular response to the promptings of grace through the Holy Spirit. It wasn't very restricted in terms of the type of expression, but it came more so as the situations would demand it. And we're going to get into prophecy within 1 Corinthians, but the portion in prophecy in, in Romans 12 is important in terms of how the gifts operate, in terms of how we need to understand them. Because it describes prophecy as those who have the prophecy in proportion to their faith. Faith is another complicated term, especially depending on the types of theologies that we're wrestling with. The receptivity that you have to the Spirit the readiness that you have to be used by God, to be filled with His grace by the Spirit, to then express that in whatever form the Spirit is prompting you is important. You know, as believers, we say we have the Holy Spirit within us, that He resides within us. Do we keep Him locked away? Is it just for us? Are we to use that Spirit, are we to use the grace that we have received to be a blessing unto others? You think back to the calling of Abraham. What does God tell Abraham? He says, be a blessing. As we use the gifts, it shows the practicality of our faith. It shows the tangibility of the love that people crave. We live in a world that is craving for hope, that is craving for truth, that is craving for answers. And we have that in the person of Jesus. Are we locking that away? Are we expressing his grace through how the Spirit prompts and the ways that he prompts? Are we showing mercy to others in cheerfulness? Everything that we do, words and deeds, need to magnify and glorify the Father. When we think about our life, when we think about our weeks, when we think about how the enemy wants to attack us, to not let that happen. We realize the battle that we're in. We realize the seriousness of the situations. We realize the lostness of man around us. But for the grace of God, we'd be right there with them. The grace that has been given to us has been given for a reason. Whether these gifts to Paul were natural abilities or wholly supernatural, it didn't really matter to Paul in as much as the charisms, the charismata, were expressions of the grace of God that were to be used to build up the body. I want you to dwell about the types of mercy that you have received in your life. I want you to think about the types of forgiveness that you have received in your life. First from God, then from others. Who are those people that you can see have this gift of doing acts of mercy that are charitable? And then people that do it with cheerfulness, 
You know, when we look at the, the faith chapter in Hebrews 11, it talks about the cloud of witnesses that have gone before us. When we look at people in the Bible, we have to realize these are real people. These are people that followed God as well. There's people in our lives that are, are like trailblazers, that are lighting the way in front of us. Paul says, imitate me as I am imitating Christ. You know, when I think about discipleship, when I think about raising disciples, as a leader, I have to be mindful of my own life. I have to be mindful of the type of life that I'm leading so that I can lead others well. All of you, doesn't matter how young or old you are, have people that look to you. Do they see mercy? Do they see cheerfulness? Because they should. Let's pray. Father, as we continue to dive deeper, Lord, there's, <laughs> there's so much more depth. We praise you, Lord, for the forgiveness that you have given us, for the mercy that you have shown us. Lord, for the grace that we have received. Lord, I thank you for salvation through Christ. And Lord, I pray that my gratitude would turn into actions. Lord, that when you say who will go, I will freely say, here I am, Lord, send me. That I would not miss the promptings of the Spirit this week to tell others about your good news to show others your loving kindness, to lead with zeal, to speak the words that you would have me speak, to teach and, and to raise up our children in the way that they should go. Father, you have blessed us beyond compare, and we praise you for that. Lord, I pray that I can bring you honor and glory with the words of my mouth and the deeds of my actions. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Would you please stand for our last song?
till the whole earth sees. The Redeemer has come, for he dwells in the presence of his people. Oh, how good it is on this journey we share to rejoice. 